as your pastor, that's one of my most favorite and treasured moments that we get to celebrate together as a faith family is when we get to take the Lord's Supper. It's a time in which we look backward, we look inward, we look upward, and we look forward. And it's just a wonderful celebration of the gospel. Back in the early 2000s, Christy and I spent some time in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, preaching the gospel, building up churches, and just seeing the Lord do an incredible work. While we were there, we had an opportunity to drive with the missionaries that we were staying with to go by what they call Fort America. It is the U.S. Embassy there in Nairobi. And I've always found that the work of an ambassador is just so interesting because the, wor- the work of an ambassador is that he represents a people. He even represents more than that, a leader. And his job as an ambassador is not only to work in the embassy, but to speak for the leader. He is to act on behalf of a leader. Fascinating job. But you know what's interesting? If you're a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Jesus. We do what he tells us to do. We say what he tells us to say. And as we are currently living in a land that is not our home, as we are sojourners who are marching to Zion, as we are a people who are living in a type of Babylon, we are ambassadors in exile. This morning, we're going to be starting a a new sermon series that will be brief in its length, but one in which I want to prepare us as we see November 3rd approaching, as we anticipate a very tumultuous and highly politicized culture, I want to remind us as followers of Jesus who we are in Christ and what God is doing that is bigger than us. So the question I want to answer today is, how do we live as ambassadors for Christ in exile? And the answer is found in Daniel chapter two. Let me show you, grab your Bible. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to take just a moment and thank those who served yesterday here at the church in our rice packing party. Our church packed 20,000 meals that are going to be sent all around the world to feed hungry kids and families. And I'm so grateful for those who served. So grateful for you. Also, for those who served at the Fall Fest uh, two, two weeks ago, thank you so much. My kids had an absolute blast. I was driving home and I said, hey guys, I think we should take a break from eating candy. And I said, guys, how many pieces of candy did you have? And I had one child from the back go, 30? I went, 30? And then he goes, oh, dad, I just lost a tooth. (laughs) So uh, the dentists in Alabaster, thank you for your work uh, last week. So we, I, I'm sure, sure grateful for you. As we're headed towards Daniel chapter two, it is so important that you have context of what is leading up to this passage. Uh, we remember back when, when Solomon died, the nation of Israel divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom was identified as Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was led by kings who were completely evil. None of them did what was right in the Lord's eyes and led God's people in the north to turn their back on the Lord. Eventually, God brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel through the nation of Assyria, which attacked them, took them into captivity in which they never returned. The southern kingdom of Judah had a mixture of good kings and bad kings, but mostly bad ones. Over time, the bad kings led God's people to walk away from the Lord, to not be obedient to the Lord. Even though God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah to call God's people to turn away from sin and return to the Lord, well, the people didn't listen. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the Lord. And so God brought judgment on the southern kingdom through the nation of Babylon. Babylon came in, they eventually sacked Jerusalem and killed many and then took many others off into exile for 70 years. Well, Daniel was probably a teenager when that took place, when he was captured and taken into exile into Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, we see how God raised up Daniel and his three friends to be leaders even within the king's domain. We see where God was providential, even in the midst of raising them up as aliens in a foreign land, as exiles in a nation that is not their home. But then we get to chapter two. It's the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And he one night has a bad dream. And he is so disturbed by this dream that he calls upon the enchanters and the, the Chaldeans and the sorcerers and the magicians and the mediums. He's asking for the most wise and smartest people to come and give him advice. And he says, I want you to not only tell me what my dream was, but I also want you to interpret it for me. And all of the people are like, well, we can interpret it for you, but you need to tell us what this dream is. And the king says, well, that ain't happening because you're just going to make something up. So they start trying to buy time saying, king, no one's ever asked anyone to do this. And he says, what I've said, I have said. And if you can't give me a proper interpretation, I'm going to execute all y'all. Actually, they're right there in the text. You got to look for it. <laughs> okay. He's a Southern accent, right? And so we see Daniel as one who is surprised when the executioner shows up at his door. And we see right there in verse 15, he asked the executioner, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch, the executioner, explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so he could give the king the interpretation. Daniel then goes home, finds his three friends and says, says, boys, it's time for us to pray. We have to seek the face of the Lord. Look at verse 19. We see, I'm sorry, verse 18. He says, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. Verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. 
He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. So then Daniel goes to the executioner and says, hey, don't kill anybody. I've got the interpretation. So the executioner then takes Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar and tells him, verse 25, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Well, the king was shocked by this and like, whoa, okay, here we go. Are you, verse 26, able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? And Daniel said, nope, God can. Verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came in your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Then Daniel breaks it down for him. Verse 31, your majesty. Love the respect there. As you were watching suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Here we see the God of the heavens, the revealer of mysteries, is revealing to Daniel the dream of a pagan king. What a reminder of the omniscience of God. Omni meaning all, science meaning knowledge. God has all knowledge over all things, including the dreams and the thoughts of pagan kings. And he takes the thoughts of this king and he reveals it to Daniel. What we see here is the power and the majesty of God in which he reveals the one, he reveals what is going on in the mind of the king. This is fascinating here. God knows all things, including the thoughts of wicked things. And so here is Daniel seeking the face of the Lord and the Lord reveals to him what is going on in the mind and in the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. 
what's fascinating here is Daniel tells him, verse 38, you are the head of gold. After you will become another kingdom, inferior to yours, silver, and then another kingdom, bronze, and then a fourth kingdom, iron, because they're going to smash and crush everything. Okay, so let's do a quick review. We see the interpretation in verses 39 and following. So we see the head of gold of this statue, stay with me here, is, the, is Babylon. This is the, the king of Nebuchadnezzar. The chest and the arms of silver, it's another kingdom. Well, as we read later in the book of Daniel, it's the Persian Empire. But then we see the stomach and the thighs of bronze. That is the Greek Empire. Then you look further on, we see the legs of iron. That is the Roman Empire. Okay, press pause. Do not underestimate the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign over every nation, every king and Caesar, whether they submit to him or not. We see here the display of God's knowledge and his wisdom over all things, even temporary human governments. And the knowledge of God must compel us to erupt in worship, to praise God for who he is and what he has revealed. We see the Apostle Paul doing this in Romans 11, verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Behold the power and the glory of the sovereign God, who not only knows all things, he ordains all things, even the rise and fall of pagan kings and nations. He is sovereign over them all. But then we see Daniel. He concludes the description of the feet, toes of this statue, part iron, part mixed with clay. I believe that this is pointing forward to a future empire. It's a future kingdom that will one day crumble. Now, if we had more time, I would point you to those 10 toes, which are symbolic of the 10 kings of Revelation 17. We see that in Jesus' second coming, he is going to destroy these 10 kings. This iron, verse 41, it represents the Roman Empire in a revived form with iron-like strength, but it's mixed with clay, which means it's going to crumble. But then watch what happens in verse 44. In the days of those kings... The God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. Here is Daniel, an, an exiled Jew living in Babylon, living amongst people who do not worship the one true living God. And here he is redeeming his time in exile 
Gentile, using it as a way to be an ambassador for Yahweh, to represent the Lord before a people who do not know the Lord. And here you sit. We are ambassadors for Christ, living in a land of people who do not worship the one true living God. We live in a culture that has turned its back on the Lord. We live amongst a people who find the gospel peculiar. The question we've got to answer today is, how? How can you and I glorify God as ambassadors for Christ as we are living in exile? I want you to see these two truths right here in the, the text. First one is this. Remember, number one, God is sovereign over every king, president, and prime minister. You can just imagine the elation that Daniel felt as God pulled back the curtain on King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. The God of the universe has just revealed the dream of the king. Daniel has been saved from death. His three buddies have just been saved from death. The wise men of the kingdom have just been saved from death. Because God revealed himself, God protected them from death. Don't miss the principle. And it's that when God speaks, it brings life. Here they were under the curse of death. Death was knocking on their door. And God revealed what Daniel needed to know and it preserved and protected their life. So it is with the word of God. When we take the word of God and we bring it to bear upon people's lives, it brings life. Well, this revelation then catapulted Daniel into God-exalting worship. Verse 20, may the name of God be praised forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. He then exults in God and his sovereignty over time and tyrants. Verse 21, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. You see, God is the one who ordains kings and presidents prime ministers and tyrants, despots and Caesars, monarchs, lords, sultans and rulers and CEOs. God is the one who orders and decrees who will be in charge of what people. We see later in chapter four where Nebuchadnezzar would have another dream in which the Lord said to him, this is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives it to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over it. In our tumultuous, politically charged time and season of life in which we live, let us remember God is sovereign over who our next president will be. As so many people are wringing their hands with fear and anxiety over what's going to happen over on November the 3rd, let us remember God is sovereign. He is the one in control. You do not need to fret, beloved. We do not fear. We know the arc of history and how it bends towards Jesus. Presidents may think, that they're the ones who got themselves to the White House. Make no mistake. God 
is the one who raises up kings and brings them down. And not only does the Lord appoint leaders, he's also sovereign over their decision-making. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it where he chooses. For it was Pontius Pilate that Jesus gave the silent treatment after one of his questions. And Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know what kind of authority I have? I have the authority to set you free and I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus responded in John 19, 11, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Let us remember who is sovereign over it all. And when you know who is in charge, it compels you and I to rejoice in the one who is sovereign, the one who is king, the one who raises up kings and monarchs and despots and the one who brings them down. Let us remember God is sovereign over every king, president, and prime minister. But secondly, what I want you to see here in the text is that every earthly kingdom is temporary. It's temporary. As Daniel describes each of these kingdoms, I want you to notice, none of them remain. (laughs) You see that? Eventually, their time runs out. A new king comes, a new government comes, a new world power comes onto the scene. Last year, Christy and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And while we were there, we got to explore a town called Megiddo. And Megiddo is a city that is seated on a hill. In fact, I think I've got a picture. Josh, if you can throw it up there. What you see on this picture is a portion of Megiddo. Underneath that are 27 different civilizations. What we see there is that as archaeologists are digging, they're having to cut it like a piece of cake. They're pulling out portions of the rubble and discovering different civilizations. Because Megiddo is positioned in such a location that it is the perfect trade route to go from Africa to Asia to Europe. And so from Joshua all the way to Napoleon, kings and kingdoms have come and conquered and established themselves, and then someone else comes and takes their place. This is a location where the bloodiest of battles have taken place. Solomon had 10,000 horses and 4,000 chariots right around this area to protect this land. It's interesting, side note, you're going to be there one day because Megiddo is the location of our Megiddo, our Megiddon, Revelation 19, the final battle where Jesus will do away with all evil. What's fascinating about this place is that as soon as a king has established his kingdom, in comes another. And his kingdom would be destroyed and then a new one. And then his kingdom would be destroyed and then a new one. God raises up kings and God brings them down. 
27 different kings and kingdoms have come in there to Megiddo, and that is just pointing us to this even greater reality, is that earthly kingdoms are temporary. They do not last. They are not permanent. You see, Babylon, the gold head, thought they'd rule forever until along came Persia. And then in came the Persians, the Medo-Persians, the silver with the chest and the arms. They thought they'd endure forever. But then in came the Greeks, and they spread their language and their way of thinking and their philosophy, and they conquered. And they thought they was theirs forever. And then in came Rome, the iron, destroying everything in their path, spreading the glory of Rome all throughout Asia and Europe and North Africa. And they thought they would rule forever until they didn't. Each of these kings in these kingdoms, they peacocked for centuries, seeing themselves as unstoppable until they weren't. But did you notice who brought the kingdoms down? Look at verse 34. A stone. <laughs> oh, y'all, here we go. A stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue. And the clay, the iron, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, verse 35, were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. They came to nothing. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. You see, for there is a stone that destroys kingdoms, a small stone that brought down the mighty, a small stone that has power and authority over temporary earthly kingdoms, a weak stone which appears small, but it's actually strong and mighty. This Stone is the stone that the builders rejected but has become the chief cornerstone. This stone is the Lord Jesus Christ who strikes and destroys the statue of temporary earthly governments. This stone became like a great mountain that filled the earth. Do you see what the Lord is doing here? He is pulling back the curtain on the future saying, there's going to come a stone who's going to destroy all of these earthly kingdoms and powers. And then this stone is going to grow into a big mighty mountain that's going to fill the entire earth. Don't miss this reality. Every kingdom on earth will one day topple. But the kingdom of God lasts forever. Tell me again why this is the most important election of our lifetime. Every four years, we hear the exact same thing. Now, make no mistake, it's important. It matters. But let's not lose sight of the bigger picture. Jesus is the one who raises up kings and kingdoms. And he is the stone that will one day topple and destroy every earthly kingdom. And his kingdom will last and reign forever. This week at my dinner table, my son Noah was telling me how he had been in my office looking at my whiteboard where I sketch out sermons and I'm writing notes and outlining and diagramming and all of that. And I had drawn a picture of the statue and I'm trying to teach myself Daniel too. And he said, Dad, did you know what's interesting? 
He said, each of the metals decrease in value the lower they go. And he said, clay and iron, they don't mix. And every foundation is going to crumble if it's built upon clay. And I was like, that's my boy right there. (laughs) He's exactly right. You may look around on all these kingdoms and countries and nations and see gold and silver and bronze and iron. One day, they're going to come crashing down because they have feet of clay. Maybe you are building your kingdom right now. You're building up a life revolved around yourself. It could be a business model in which you're the center and the focus. It could be your own little family saying, this is going to be my kingdom that I'm going to build and it's going to last forever. Please be reminded that this stone will one day crush every kingdom that competes against the kingdom of God. This morning, would you humble yourself before this stone, the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, those who fall upon this rock are going to be destroyed, Matthew 21. Jesus is the stone upon which he will one day wipe out every kingdom that competes for allegiance with him. If you have been building another kingdom, if you have been building your life on anything other than Jesus Christ, it will come crumbling down. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came so that he could be the rock upon which you build your life. This stone was crushed for you at the cross. This stone took the punishment that you and I deserved at the cross. Jesus endured our suffering so so that you and I don't have to. Jesus went to the, the cross, but he didn't stay dead. For on the third day, he rose back to life. So now you and I, we give our lives to invest in a kingdom that will reign and last forever. We are now giving our lives to advance the mission of God and the kingdom of God that will never stop. We are a people who are set apart to something bigger than ourselves. We are a people who will one day declare Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Today, believe the gospel trust in Jesus. If you don't, the stone will one day destroy you. Therefore, look to the stone who was destroyed for you at the cross so that in him you might be rescued and saved. Now, for those who are in Christ, let us remember every king, every president, every tyrant is an interim. They do not Last, their authority is temporary and it's on loan from the King of Kings. I thought John Piper got this exactly right when he said, one day America and all of its presidents will be a footnote in history, but God's kingdom will never end. Therefore, let's be a people who give our lives not to an allegiance to a political party that will one day come toppling down. Let us give our lives to advancing the kingdom of God, which will never end. So as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors for Christ in exile, this is how we live. But do you notice in the life of Daniel, 
we see him working and laboring for the good of the city. We see in Daniel someone who is submissive to the king, prays for his king, supports the king, serves the king. He is blessing and building up the kingdom. Why? Because he knows his citizenship is not in Judah or in Babylon. His citizenship is in heaven. So it is with you. Your citizenship is not here on earth. Your citizenship is in heaven with Christ. So now knowing who we are and where we belong, you and I, we now live as good citizens in this earthly kingdom. We pray for our president. We submit to our governing authorities. We support those whom God has placed in authority above us. Just as Daniel was an ambassador in, in exile, so too are we, which is your impact point. It's this. Here's what we're calling you to do. Serve earthly kingdoms as permanent citizens of the eternal kingdom. This is, this is what we do as followers of Jesus. We, we serve earthly kingdoms knowing that this is not our final stop. We are just passing through. We are headed to Zion. But you know what's amazing here? The chapter begins with a death sentence. And it ends with Daniel sitting on a throne. When we look at the greater and true Daniel, he had a death sentence. And one day, he ends up on the throne. We see Daniel who did nothing wrong, who is praying for mercy. We see Jesus who was perfect and sinless in all of his ways, who in the garden of Gethsemane prayed for God's mercy. We see Jesus, the greater and truer Daniel, who was under the sentence of death and he went all the way up Calvary's cross where he gladly and willingly and joyfully gave his life for you. He gave his life so that in him you might be redeemed, forgiven, and you might rightly enjoy the Lord forever. And the Bible says that he was put into a tomb, but he didn't stay dead. For on the third day, he came back to life. He is risen and he is reigning on his throne, seated high and exalted. And one day you're going to see him. And our hope as a follower of Jesus is now as citizens of his kingdom, as ambassadors in exile, we now give our lives to advance his kingdom that started off as a stone and will one day be a mountain that fills the entire earth. And this is a kingdom that will not be shaken or stirred, but is established both now and forever. Let's give our lives to advancing the kingdom of God that will never, ever 